Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can uh, gather together this morning to remember uh, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I pray that I would uh, explain this passage clearly and that you would bring home afresh to our hearts uh, not just what happened at Easter, but what uh, those events mean for us, the significance of them, the difference that they make. Uh, please, Lord, be present with us and help us, I pray. Amen. Uh, so, as I just hinted in my prayer, uh, most of us, I think, probably know something about what happened at Easter. Maybe something about Jesus dying on a cross, maybe an empty tomb, uh, a bit hazy on the details, but we're, we're clear on some of the events. Uh, we just don't know what those events mean, perhaps. Well, what's the significance of those events? What, what difference do they really make to our day-to-day lives? So, that's what we're exploring this Easter at Darabin Presbyterian Church. What difference does Easter make? And today, in particular, uh, we're looking at what difference does Jesus' death make? Uh, to answer that question, uh, we're going to learn uh, three things about Jesus' death. You can see on, your, uh, on the inside of the Connect card, the three points are listed there. Uh, if it's useful for you, you can take notes there. Uh, you can see the three things are, we're going to learn how Jesus died, uh, we're going to learn why Jesus died, and we're going to learn uh, what Jesus offers us. Uh, so first, let, let's look at how Jesus died, that first point. Uh, You might have noticed that uh, throughout the passage, as Stuart read it, uh, that one of the phrases that's repeated uh, really uh, quite a few times is that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Uh, John says that four times, actually. Uh, Verse 24, verse 28, uh, verse 36, and verse 37. So I just want to have a closer look at one of those in verses 23 and 24. Uh, If you've got the passage, it might be useful. Uh, John says from verse 23... Uh, When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four shares, one for each of them, uh, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened uh, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So, this is what the soldiers did. Right, so you, you notice here that the soldiers who are crucifying Jesus, they take off his outer garment uh, and they divide, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, they, and they divide uh, his outer garments amongst themselves. Uh, but when they come to the undergarment, they decide to cast lots for it. They're, they're gambling for it. As you picture the scene, it's incredibly humiliating for Jesus. Not only have these uh, soldiers publicly stripped him naked, Now they're standing right by his side, gambling for his clothes. If you just looked at that picture by itself, it would seem like Jesus was completely disempowered, right? It would seem like he had no control at all of what's going on in the situation. But John repeatedly throughout this passage is wanting to give us a different perspective. He says that all this happened, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, The scripture he's talking about here in verses 23 and 24 is Psalm 22, verse 18. That's what's quoted there, right? Psalm uh, 22, the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, a book of uh, songs for God's people. Uh, And Psalm 22 is about the suffering of God's king. And verse 18 of that psalm says that one aspect of the suffering of God's king uh, is that people would strip him naked uh, and divide his undergarments uh, by lots. They would cast lots for his garments, So John's point here is is that on the surface, uh, it seems like cruel and evil soldiers are in control. It's their plan that Jesus would be stripped and humiliated and crucified. 
But on a deeper level, uh, John shows us that it's God who's in control. These things are all happening so that God's plan would be fulfilled, that everything he'd said in the scriptures would be fulfilled. Uh, His chosen king, Jesus, suffers and dies to fulfill God's promises. So that's the first thing. How did Jesus die? He died according to the scriptures that God's promises in in all the Old Testament of the Bible would be fulfilled. Uh, What about why Jesus died? Uh, What we see in this passage is that Jesus died as our substitute. That means Jesus died in our place, if you like. We see that in three ways. Right, The first way uh, is that Jesus died as the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. So if you look in, in uh, verses 28 and 29, that's, uh, if you're not familiar with verses, that's just the little numbers on the passage. Uh, so verses 28 and 29, John says, uh, Later, knowing that uh, everything had now been finished, and so that, note again, the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. So Jesus has been crucified, he's thirsty, uh, and someone raises up a sponge uh, with some wine vinegar on the sponge, uh, and they do that on the stalk of a hyssop plant. Why does John mention the specific plant that they lifted up on? A hyssop plant. It's because of a background in the Old Testament. Uh, In Exodus uh, chapter 12, Israel is about to be released from slavery in Egypt. You might not know that story very well, but perhaps you've you've seen the Prince of Egypt movie. Right, This this is the moment. Israel is about to be released from slavery in Egypt. Uh, God's told them that he's finally going to judge Egypt uh, because Egypt uh, has been uh, repeatedly rejecting him and mocking him and mistreating his people. Uh, And tragically, God says that his ultimate judgment on the people of Egypt is that the firstborn in every Egyptian household will die. But in Exodus 12, verse 22, God tells every Israelite household to sacrifice a lamb. I'll read from verse 21 for some context. Moses says to Israel, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Then he says, Take a bunch of the hyssop plant. Dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes throughout the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood of the, on the top and sides of your door frame and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. Oh, so you notice that? Oh, way back, like 1,500, 2,000 years before, Uh, God had told uh, Israel to brush the blood of this lamb across their doorframe with a bunch of the hyssop plant. So that's in John's mind. When John John mentions this because he wants us to to realize that Jesus is like the ultimate Passover lamb. Jesus is our substitute, he's saying. Jesus dies in our place on the cross uh, for our sins to enable us to escape God's judgment just as Israel did. So uh, as John says earlier in his gospel, in chapter 1, verse 39, uh, he says, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But he reinforces this idea in verses 35 and 36, if you look at the passage. Uh, I'll read from verse 31. John says, "Uh, Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. 
uh, because the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate uh, to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. And the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of both blood and water. These things happened again that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now, I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that uh, that crucifixion uh, really was a brutal uh, a brutal and slow way of dying. It's interesting that typically a person being crucified would actually uh, die of asphyxiation. Uh, eventually they'd choke to death uh, because the person being crucified uh, had to uh, lift themselves up with their arms to be able to keep on breathing or perhaps with their legs if uh, often there was a wooden block underneath their feet and so they might be able to push themselves up to be able to kind of clear their lungs uh, to be able to keep breathing. Uh, Of course, if someone's legs were broken, they'd no longer be able to push themselves up and they'd choke within minutes. That's what's going on here. The Jewish leaders uh, wanted to speed up that process of the people dying, not because they were compassionate, uh, simply because they didn't want bodies hanging on the crosses in the Sabbath, uh, on the Sabbath. And so they go to Pilate and ask him to send his soldiers out to speed up that process, to go around and, and break the legs of each person on the cross that they would choke to death and their bodies uh, could be taken down. Uh, But when they come to Jesus, uh, they discover that he's already died. So they don't have to break his legs. And John says that that happened uh, to fulfill the scriptures. Once again, it's background in the Old Testament. That's why John mentions that. In Exodus 12, verse 46, uh, it stipulates that the Passover lamb must not have any broken bones. What's that about? It's saying that the Passover lamb has to be perfect. It has to be a perfect sacrifice, an unblemished sacrifice. And here in John 19, John, uh, John's saying that that is what Jesus is like. Right? Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, right? the only one who has ever been able to live an unblemished life, right to the very end. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb, John's saying, the lamb of God who takes away our sins. That's the the first kind of substitute idea in this passage. Uh, The second is uh, that Jesus uh, is the rock of God uh, who dies to take the judgment that we deserve. Have a look in verse 34. Uh, We read that one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side and both blood and water flow out. That's an interesting detail. Why does John mention that there's water in Jesus' blood? Once again, it's all back in the book of Exodus. right? So in Exodus 17, remember in Exodus 12, they're being released from slavery in Egypt. In Exodus 17, the story's moved on a bit. They're wandering through the wilderness. And as they go through the wilderness, they start to complain and grumble and they argue against God. They say, God, you don't really love us. You don't care for us. You brought us away from all the pleasures of Egypt. Short memories. All the pleasures of Egypt are to bring us out here into the wilderness. So in response to their complaints, God tells Moses to get Israel to stand in front of a particular rock in the wilderness. And then God tells Moses that he is going to stand on the rock. 
And then he says something really quite amazing because he tells Moses to take out his rod. Right? There's a picture of kind of a, a big staff. Right? Moses would have used it to, to punish people who'd broken God's law. Right? So God tells Moses to take out his rod and to strike the rock. Do you see what God's asking Moses to do? He's saying, Moses, I want you to strike me, to punish me, rather than Israel. God is willing to take the judgment that Israel deserves, to, to stand in their place, to, to, to absorb his own righteous judgment. And when Moses strikes the rock, uh, water comes gushing out in the wilderness. Water that brings life and satisfaction to Israel. Right? God takes the judgment that Israel deserves so they can receive life and satisfaction that they don't deserve. Uh, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that that rock in the wilderness uh, was really like a signpost pointing us to Christ. Uh, so just as all those Passover lambs, those lambs in the Old Testament, so that they were signposts pointing us to Christ as the ultimate Passover lamb, uh, so also the rock in the, the wilderness is a signpost pointing us uh, to Christ, to Christ who is the ultimate rock of God. Right? But because like Israel, we too deserve to be judged by God. A judge for all the times we reject God or offend God for the ways we live, the, the times when we've complained against God, the times when we've wanted nothing to do with God. But on the cross, Jesus takes that judgment that we deserve. Right? That's the picture. Jesus is struck, he's, he's pierced by the rod of God's justice. So like Israel, we get what we don't deserve. Right? Just as water came gushing from that rock in the wilderness, water comes from Jesus' side. That's the point. Water that brings life and satisfaction. We'll talk more about that later on. Life and satisfaction that we don't deserve. Right? Jesus is the rock of God who takes the judgment that we don't deserve. Third substitute idea. Uh, Jesus is the ransom of God who pays off all our spiritual debts. Uh, have a look in verse 30. Uh, just before Jesus bows his head and dies, uh, he cries out, it is finished. Uh, that word finished has the sense of every obligation has been met. Uh, even sometimes every debt has been paid. So it's a pretty weird picture. Right? Here's Jesus. He's been mocked, spat upon, stripped, humiliated. Uh, he's been whipped kind of within an inch of his life. He's been crucified. He's about to die. And it's like he triumphantly says, I've won. I've done it. I've completed the job. Why would Jesus say that? Well, because he knows that spiritually speaking, all of us are massively in debt to God. But every time we sin, it's like a little bit of debt added to our account. Right? And, and some of you know that. You, you feel it really acutely. In fact, you, you spend your whole life uh, trying to do all sorts of things to try and work off your debts, to try and even out the books. Uh, perhaps you go to church. Maybe you don't. Maybe you, you say some prayers. Uh, maybe you go to church every now and then. You know, maybe you uh, give money to charity when the person comes to your door. You don't diss them like the other people or the, or the Good Friday appeal. You'll be there later on today. You know, you're evening out the books. Like, sure, I sinned, but here's the money for the Good Friday appeal. Like, uh, everything we do, we're, we're kind of constantly striving. And we just hope that, that someday, somehow, at the end of our lives, we've evened out the books with God. 
We've worked off our debt. Uh, of course, the problem with that is that over the years, our debt to God has gotten so big that we can never pay it off. We can pay it off, uh, but only if we die. Well, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. We owe God our lives. Uh, but Jesus says it is finished. It's done. Uh, because in his death on the cross, he's paying off all our spiritual debts. There's, there's nothing left to pay. He's paying the full price, uh, the full ransom, right? the price that has to be paid to set us free from what we owe God. Uh, it's pretty well known that the last words of Buddha uh, were strive without ceasing. That's what you've got to do. Keep, keep striving. The last words of Jesus were, I've done all the striving for you. Right, in your place, I've completed the job. I've paid off all your debts. And so stop striving to try and pay off your debts yourself. Right, you'll never get there. And just rest in what Christ has done. Why did Jesus die? He died as our substitute. He died in our place. Uh, of course, lots of people uh, aren't fond of that idea. Uh, it seems overly intense. Uh, it seems uh, unnecessary, perhaps even barbaric. Why can't we just focus on the, uh, a kind of warm, fuzzy idea that God's a God of love? That would be much more palatable. Right, but but uh, the, the, I just want to suggest uh, this morning that if you get rid of this idea that Jesus died as our substitute, uh, you get rid of the idea uh, of a truly loving God. Right, if you, you go with me with this, uh, but because all true love involves substitution. All true love involves changing places. It involves sacrifice. So we see this in, uh, in how relationships work all the time. Uh, for example, I reckon most of us here would have spent an evening with someone who's really struggling emotionally. Uh, maybe they're depressed, maybe they're really anxious, uh, but whatever the case is, you're the emotionally strong one, they're the emotionally weak one, and they just want to unload on you. Right? And if you've been in that situation before, you know that as the conversation goes on, uh, they start to feel better, and you start to feel worse. Right? They feel kind of emotionally topped up, and you feel a bit drained. Right? But if you love them, isn't that what you'll do? Because you understand that you could, of course, hold on to your emotional strength. But the really loving thing to do is to change places. Is to say, I'll sacrifice my emotional strength for the sake of them. That's how true love works. It always involves substitution, changing places, sacrifice. It's the same with parenting. That's another good example. Right, Gabby and I have, have two children, uh, Ada and Charlie. And of course, and I'm sometimes tempted, but we could uh, just spend time with them when it's convenient for us. Right, but because we don't want to give up any of our freedom and our independence. Right, we could do that. Uh, but if we did that, not only would it be incredibly unloving and, and people would frown on us as parents, right? Uh, but it would also mean that Ada and Charlie would grow up uh, to be emotionally needy and dependent. They'd be desperate for attention all the time. Right? If we really love our kids, we'll be willing to sacrifice our freedom and independence for the sake of their freedom and independence. I, I think we get that. Like any parent gets that. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be convinced of the gospel to get that. That's just how, that's how love works. All true love involves substitution, involves changing places, it involves sacrifice. I won't talk about Anzac Day, but it's the same thing, isn't it? 
Like it's sacrifice for the sake of others. Substitution. They died that we might live. Right? That's true love. And that's what we see at the cross. Right? Because of his great love for us, Jesus as God changes places with us. He dies in our place, bearing uh, the, the punishment that we deserve so that we can experience life and satisfaction that we don't deserve. That's true love. And that brings me to my third point, which is, uh, what does Jesus offer us? Uh, we saw earlier, I read earlier, uh, in verse 28, Jesus says, I am thirsty. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, if you read through the story of Jesus' death, uh, he doesn't actually say very much. Right? That means anything Jesus does say is pretty significant. Well, when uh, Jesus is mocked, when a crown of thorns is shoved on his head, uh, when nails are driven through his hands... Nothing. Says absolutely nothing. Right, so doesn't it, it seem a, a little bit odd that now all of a sudden he complains about being thirsty? Right after everything he's been through, he's like, I really like a drink. You know, like it's sort of, it's a little bit, it seems a bit odd. Right, of course he was thirsty. He lost lots of blood. He's completely exhausted. He's about to die. He could have done with a drink. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's deeper than that. And when Jesus says he's thirsty, he, he's describing a spiritual thirst, a deep longing, a desire. Earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 4, verses 13 to 15, Jesus has a conversation with a woman at a well. And in the conversation, he offers the woman what he calls living water. Water that brings a deep and lasting life and satisfaction. He says to the woman, whoever drinks this water that I give will never thirst. And now, of course, they're at the well, and the woman thinks Jesus is talking about physical thirst. She's kind of like, what kind of water is this? It's incredible water, right? But uh, Jesus is describing this spiritual thirst, a longing, a desire that, that can only be satisfied through knowing God. You see, in our sin, all of us have rejected God. Right? God is the source of all life and satisfaction. Everything good comes from God. Every blessing we enjoy comes from him. Uh, but instead of finding life and satisfaction in knowing him, we've tried to find those things elsewhere. In money or work or family or in having the approval of everyone or being in control of everything or preserving my comfort at all costs or constantly increasing my status and influence in the world. We try to find life and satisfaction in all these things, and in doing that, we cut ourselves off from the true source of life. And so we're spiritually thirsty now, and we deserve to be spiritually thirsty forever. That's really the, the Christian understanding of judgment and, and hell, if you like. It's a life of, of spiritual dissatisfaction going on forever. It's a horrible picture. But here we see that on the cross, that was what Jesus experienced. Jesus had always been in perfect relationship. Jesus the Son, he'd been in perfect relationship with his Father. He'd always been perfectly satisfied. And yet here on the cross, he's, he's separated from his Father because he's taken on our sin. And he says, I'm thirsty. I'm desperate. On the cross, Jesus experiences the eternal spiritual thirst that we deserve. So we can experience living water, life and satisfaction that we don't deserve. Right? Life and satisfaction that only come from knowing God, being reconnected with our Creator as we were always supposed to be. Uh, so what difference does Easter make? 
Well, it makes all the difference. Well, it makes no difference if you don't accept any of what I've said. But it makes all the difference if you accept what Jesus offers you. If you trust that Jesus didn't just die on the cross, he died in your place on the cross. If you trust that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away your sins, that he's the rock of God who takes, uh, who takes your judgment on the cross, that he's the ransom of God who pays your debts. If you trust that Jesus experienced this eternal thirst that you deserve on the cross, so that you can uh, know uh, God and experience the life and satisfaction that you don't deserve. Right? If you trust those things, if you accept those things, it makes all the difference. It will transform your life. Uh, let me pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray that this Easter, uh, that we'd not only be clear on kind of what happened at Easter, in this case that Jesus died on a cross, uh, but what those events mean. What's the significance of them? Uh, Lord, please open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts uh, to truly see the difference that Easter makes and particularly uh, the difference that Jesus' death makes in our place on the cross. Uh, for his glory we pray. Amen.